RadioInfluence.com Why, Crush it's good to see you. You're listening to Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell. Get in on the talent grid and text Crush at 101260 with your questions, comments, or smart-ass remarks. And welcome to Crush Performance, everybody. I am Jeff Crushell, and we're your weekly source for performance information. I hope you had a fantastic week. Because we have a really big show today. It is episode number four of the Crush Brain Game. The Crush Brain Game, of course, one of our main themes here for 2021, along with talent and talent ID. Episode number four here today will wrap up this series. We'll be having more as the year rolls on. But it's a very important show today as we talk to Dr. Mayank Mehta of the UCLA Department of Physics and Astronomy, the Department of Neurology, and the Department of Electronics and Communication Engineering. Dr. Mehta and his group have done some very, very important work when it comes to understanding how the brain operates. Their work has shed some new light on the process of perception and how it impacts our learning, our development, and our performance in sport. And while we're just scratching the surface on our understanding of how the brain really works, we could be on the very doorstep of some of the most exciting discoveries ever made. We have a lot to cover today, so without further ado, I am very, very happy to introduce Dr. Mike Mehta of the UCLA Department of Neurology. Dr. Mehta, welcome to Crush Performance. Thank you. I look forward to this discussion. Well, we are embarking on our series called The Crush Brain Game. It's one of our main themes here in 2021, and when I saw your TED Talk here looking at the impact of virtual reality and how it affects our brains, um, it really, really got me thinking about the whole concept of perception and the importance of what we see. Uh, and, and I was really excited to get you on. So thank you again for doing this. Maybe for our audience and for me too as well, maybe you could give us a little roadmap in as, as, as to how you wound up researching all this incredible stuff you and your team is working on right now. Yeah, so let me, that's a great question. And maybe let me start with the very broad perspective and then I'll focus on the precisely what we are doing now. So for me, the what I was always interested in was what is this weird thing called space and time? Because we all feel it is there. We, we, we live in space and time. We cannot change them. Uh, but still, I can't touch it. I can't smell it. I can't influence it. I can't manipulate it. So the space and time, are for those who are religious, it's like God. It's there. You cannot do anything to it, but it does everything to you. So what the hell is that thing? And so I ended up doing PhD in understanding how space and time began and what's the structure of space-time. And I wrote a whole lot of papers about it. And that there's a fascinating uh, relationship between space and time, as you know. But as I was doing the research, I became more interested to say, do I need such sophisticated mathematics? or quantum field theory and all that stuff to understand space-time? Or can animals perceive space-time without complicated mathematics? For example, any sports that you look at, whether it's the golf or whether it's baseball, people have to have very clear perception of space and time at every moment, where exactly is the ball, where exactly it is headed. They need to know that. So is it only the baseball players who can do that? Or is it true that animals too have that ability? 
And that's where I went down the deep end. So I started to think to say, well, so, you know, clearly animals can perceive space and time. But here, going back to the God idea, I'm not religious, by the way, this is at all, this is just an analogy. So the analogy that I talk about in my TED Talk is imagine a bird whose brain is a bird brain, which is pretty tiny, a pebble-sized brain. That bird can, first of all, navigate from north to south pole. So that's enormous space, way more than any human being can ever accomplish, let alone fly. But on top of that, on the way that bird needs food, so it dives down to the surface of water. There's a fish that is underneath it. And the bird catches that fish. Clearly, the fish doesn't want to be caught. The bird and the fish are living in two entirely different mediums. If the bird is in the water, the bird is dead. If the fish is in the air, the fish is dead. They're totally different species. They have different experiences, completely different choices. But their perception of space and time is accurate within millimeters and milliseconds. If it was slightly off, the bird will either never catch a fish or the fish will get too fat, one of the two. So life on planet will come to an end if not only every animal had a perception of space and time, but that perception of space and time agreed with every other animal on a moment-to-moment basis, highly accurately. Otherwise, no predator will catch a prey or no prey will escape a predator. So now you see that life on Earth is in very precise balance of space and time so that both predator and prey can survive. If there was slight imbalance, if lions became just a little too good at catching the deers, all of a sudden deers are decimated. If the deers get just a little too good at space and time and taking dodging movements against the lion, lions are decimated. So you see how deep this thing goes. So what we use is really tip of the iceberg. Isn't that incredible? And you bring up a couple of very interesting thoughts there. You know, we used to watch National Geographic on television. You'd see the great migrations, right? The, 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 uh, the, the massive mammals there migrating through, through the African plains. Or think about this. I grew up uh, on a bee farm, and it always amazed me how those bees found their way back to their hives. I mean, you're right. It's absolutely incredible if you think about it. And now if we come back to the world of sport, tracking, understanding, and seeing that ball, it's one of the hardest things to do in sport, hitting a major league fastball or a major league curveball, um, to think of all of the information and everything that goes into making that happen. Whoa, you're you're blowing my mind here. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that problem gets even crazier that how the baseball player, a pro does that, that blows your mind. But if you look inside under the hood, you look at the brain, it's actually going to blow your brain. And I, I, all pun is intended. Right. We'll be so careful. Does, hey, we'll be careful how deep we go here. There's <laughs> <laughs> that famous baseball shot, right? The classic when a bird was flying and a ball hit and unfortunately decimated the bird. So there is that example when the bird could not really play that game well enough. Yeah. And could get hit. So, so let me come back to what goes on inside the brain or how we manage to do this. And we agree that all creatures are able to do that. Birds are able to catch a fly in the air, which is flying around, which is tiny. We can't catch, but the birds do. So understanding how animals do can give us pretty important insights about how our brain does that. 
So the what goes on inside of our brain is even crazier than what we see on a giant screen TV when a pro hits a ball. Inside of our brain are 100 billion neurons. To put it in perspective, on this planet, there are 8 billion human beings. 8 billion. So it's equivalent to 12 planet Earth's size neurons in our brain. And these neurons are actually like baseball fans. They are not quiet. <laughs> they are all screaming at the same time. And when you keep quiet, and these neurons, they're screaming, their sounds are like pops. They're little pops. And they're gigantic. They're not that small. They're 0.1 volts. That is pretty big. So imagine the potential of your brain. Each neuron's potential when it talks is 0.1 volt. Sounds like a small thing, but when you multiply it by 100 billion, you get a gigantic number. You wonder how come you don't get electrocuted yourself with a gigantic potential. This is hundreds of millions of volts. Doesn't happen. Now, these neurons, they are simultaneously doing a whole lot of things. And to, to break it down and to give you a simple perspective on what goes on and what differentiates a pro from a novice or an average player, it all boils down to one phrase, predictive coding. That's it. Predictive coding. What the baseball pro is doing is to predict even before the ball leaves the hand. And ideally, as soon as the ball leaves the hand of the pitcher, where is that ball going to end up? Based on how the pitcher is turning his hand, based on the airspeed, based on the, his own weight, based on the angle at which he's holding the bat, based on the wind that's going around him, based on the exact angle. Because if any of that was off by even one centimeter, it's not a home run. So that's got to do with predictive coding, predicting basic laws of physics, which are very complicated. It's not just Newton's laws of motion of F equals MA, but all keeping track of wind speed, previous experience, knowing what the pitcher might do at the last second before the ball leaves the hand. All that is being predicted by the brain. That's what it's all about. Oh, absolutely incredible. We're talking with Dr. Mayank Mehta from the UCLA Department of Neurology. Dr. Mehta, this is a fascinating conversation. And that uh, that's that, that description of predictive coding is really, really intriguing, especially when you talk about the difference between maybe the top, top performers, an average professional athlete, and an amateur. Man, it just makes yeah. me think of what happens over the timeline of a human That's being, right. whether they're a tennis player or whether they're a golfer or an accountant or or maybe a, a, a first chair violinist in the London Philharmonic exactly. Orchestra. What happens inside of those brains over time? It has to have a lot to do with how they perceive and, and maybe learn in their environments. Does that kind of make exactly. sense to you? You got it. Exactly. It has got to do with exactly how they perceive things. It has got to do with what the brain does with it and what the neurons learn from it. But that is just the tip of the iceberg once again. Yeah. A huge amount of that goes underneath is stuff that you and I do not even perceive. So let, if you wish, I can break it down a little for you. Would that be considered the subconscious? I don't know that because I don't know how to measure the subconscious. But if I were to take the scientific license to say, Maybe if I could define subconscious and measure it, this might be it. Okay. There's a technical term for it. The technical term is called non-declarative memory. Declarative memory is such that I can ask you, hey, what did you have for lunch today? 
And you can tell me exactly what you had for lunch if you were paying attention. Now I ask you, all right, two minutes ago, you were riding a bicycle. What exactly were you doing besides moving the pedal? How exactly were you keeping your balance? You would have a hard time describing what did you do. I said, I just wasn't balanced. So that is a, that's a technical term. So I'm comfortable using that term that a lot of these things that we do when we become professionals is that it is, goes completely under the hood. We do not have very clear access to what we are doing. And actually, that relates to a lot of Zen monks. Zen monks, and it relates to space and time once again. Because the reflexes are so fast, these players have to calculate things very, very fast. There is no time. Zen monks actually learn to figure out what our thoughts are by slowing down the passage of time in the brain so they can examine every step of the thought. So one way in which we can help professional athletes is to slow down the whole process. And, and the idea is not very new. The way we do it is new. The idea is not new. You know, the way any professional player learns anything, one way is to record a video of a pro playing and then play it on slow motion. But that's a pro playing. And everybody has a different strength, different ability. Maybe my right shoulder is stronger than my left shoulder compared to that pro. I'll have a different swing. I need to have my version. So it has to be individualized. The training has to be individualized based on my strengths and weaknesses and experiences. And that's where this new technology of virtual reality comes into picture. Oh my goodness. No, no, this is very, very intriguing. So Dr. Mehta, last night, um, um, the NHL playoffs kick off. The Edmonton Oilers play the Winnipeg Jets. And the Edmonton Oilers just happen to have a special player named Connor McDavid, who is a very, very special, highly skilled player. And one of his greatest attributes are his speed. And so you have to think, based on our conversation here, the way Connor McDavid has perceived the game of hockey, maybe even through his his youth and through his development, even to this very day, he perceives the game differently maybe than everybody else on the ice. And maybe that's what makes him very special. Absolutely. You put your on that once again. Absolutely right on. It has got to do with that series of experiences. That series of experiences that is specific to that player builds up a giant library. It's not just library of 10,000 different books. It's a giant library of 10,000 connected books, all connected to each other. It's a unique library. And as more experience comes in, that's where the key thing is, the new experience has to build on the old experience. So if, I, if I'm a reasonably good player, I watch another player playing a game which is using a different tactic. It's like saying I'm, I'm following a cooking recipe of one and all of a sudden halfway through I said, oh, that chef is making a different food. Let me change a different recipe. That's a bad idea. And so when it, But still one can learn from it. And that's where what is re, what the use for virtual reality is how to adapt the techniques of another player so that it can build on to the given player's abilities rather than just ram onto that. That's not a good thing. It's to build on it. And that's got to do with predictive coding once again. Right. Oh, I love the concept of predictive coding. Actually, it makes a lot of sense to me. And it actually helps me connect a lot of dots in terms of player development through youth and upwards. And not just in sport. I mean, this applies to everything. Hey, Dr. Meta, you know, I saw your, I also saw your presentation um, called how neurons um, 
um, relate to virtual reality. And a lot of that was based around spatial awareness, understanding where we are in space. So in order to track that fastball coming in at 99 or 100 miles an hour, I not only have to really understand where I am in space, I have to also really have a great perception of where everything else is. And, and that's all, that's those screaming neurons in the brain just working that, working their magic. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So we have been studying how the neurons in our brain create this perception of space and perception of time. And especially our interest has been in the perception of very precise perception of space and very precise perception of time. And how does that change as a function of the movement of the subject itself? Because as you know, in any sports, is not only the ball that is moving or the puck that is moving, it's also other players that are moving. It's the safe shape of the arena and the movements that I am making. I need to change my movements if something changed halfway through. Somebody intercepted, I need to change my plan instantly. So we are interested in how that complex sense of space is created from many, many inputs. It's not just the ball or a puck that is important. It's a lot of other things. So we call the multi-sensory space-time hypothesis. Pretty simple, multi-sensory. Now, this is a really tough thing. It sounds like a simple thing. Yeah, it's true. I'm keeping track of the wind speed. I'm keeping track of where the ball is. I'm keeping track of the player. But this is a problem, it turns out, is very, very important in defense, in actually fighter jets. When you have a fighter jet that's going 600 miles an hour, it has multiple sensors. There's a sensor that's keeping track of infrared. There's other sensor that's keeping track of radar, a third sensor that may be the pilot himself seeing stuff. These sensors have to be fused together. That's a very hard problem. These players are playing exactly that same problem. They are solving the same problem, how to fuse multiple sensors together. That's where the difference comes in between a pro versus not a pro. Exact fusion. Few milliseconds here and there makes a big difference for a fighter jet and a pro. The same concept, multi-sensor fusion. Multi-sensor fusion. That sounds like something right out of Star Wars, Dr. Meta, and I love it. All right, we have to cut out for a quick break, everybody, but stick around because we have a lot more to get to here on The Crush Brain Game as we continue our discussion into perception, how virtual reality impacts our brains, and could we be on the doorstep of one of the most exciting discoveries ever made? It's all coming up right after this on Crush Performance. You're listening to Crush Performance with Jeff Crushell. Get the Crush podcast, newsletter, and performance links at crushperformance.com. Now, back to the show. I have done nothing short of walking on water for the sun to find my love. Welcome back to Crush Performance, everybody. Jeff Crushell here. Hey, if you have any questions, comments, smart remarks, or if you have any questions on today's episode or anything else that might be going on, get to us. Crushperformance.com is the website. Info at Crush Performance is the email. Follow me on Twitter at Jeff Crush. 
and on all other social media platforms. Search out Crush Performance and we can connect there. All right, today, episode four of the Crush Brain Game, we are talking with Dr. Mike Mehta of the UCLA Department of Neurology. Dr. Mehta, thank you for hanging on over the break. It has been a fantastic conversation so far. Let me ask you this. So vision, of course, is probably one of our major inputs. We have all the other sensory, you know, smell, feel, uh, the audio, the audible. Um, and so all these things come together to give us a real picture. So vision, of course, is probably one of our major inputs. We have all the other sensory, you know, smell, feel, uh, the audio, the audible. Um, and so all these things come together to give us a real picture. So let me ask you this, just in the world of sport where I'm from, um, again, for the crush brain game conversation here, one of the things that we've gotten into in sport is uh, trying to train vision, trying to improve vision, where to focus, what visual cues should you be sort of taking in and focusing on, all these things that come together. Does it make sense to you that we try to train a, a wide receiver in the NFL on a flat screen of a computer, uh, punching dots or reacting to information on a, on a you know two dimensional screen. You know, based on what you're That's saying true. here, I I kind of get the limitations that we that we're up against with some of these training modalities. That's exactly right. So that is going to have some limitations, as you put it very well. That if you're simply touching a dot on the screen, the hope is that the learning that one does from that will generalize to the real situation where a pitcher's ball is coming in, and more importantly, I'm swinging a bat. Now, we we don't want to ignore that fact. That's equally important. If I perceive where the ball will land perfectly, but if I did not move my arm and the bat to meet it at the right spot, it's pointless. So now you put your finger onto it, and this is the multi-sensory part that our papers are exploring. Vision is one part, but our body itself is a major component in everything when we are moving in space. When a fighter jet pilot is moving through space, where the fighter jet goes is as important as where the other plane is or the other sensors are. Equally important, no more and no less. And it turns out that when we are moving around in space, brain has to calculate Not only where the stimulus, the visual stimulus is going, but where I am going to be, where my hands are going to be, where the bat is going to be. That's the fusion that must happen in a game. Even if you forget the wind speed and everything else, these two must coincide perfectly. Otherwise, it's game over. That's what we are looking at. My brain's getting tired just thinking about this stuff, <laughs> for crying out loud. Hey, so so we've got, hey, we're getting into some pretty serious stuff here. We're talking space and time. We're talking space and time, space coming together in very, very, I guess, um, accurate points in time to give us our feedback system, to give us our GPS, maybe? See me, this, this part of the brain we are studying is called the GPS system of the brain that was awarded the Nobel Prize in 2014 for the discovery of the GPS system. And you may think, well, you know, GPS system, that's not so accurate. It gives me, you know, sometimes a turn signal, it gives me by about four or five, maybe 30 feet wrong, it can be off. So GPS doesn't seem that precise. But what you'll be surprised is that when we looked at the brains of just tiny mice, which are very fast, by the way. If you were to try to catch one of them, you will know how hard it is. 
Now, those little buggers, their brains are like hundreds of times smaller than our brains. And we have very precise technology by which we can listen in to their neurons without harming them. Otherwise, once again, game over. If you damage the neuron, then the animal is not going to be able to do anything. Now, here's the cool part. When we listen to this neuron in this one small part of the GPS of this mouse brain, the so-called GPS, that brain has about 300,000 neurons, which is nothing compared to 100 billion that human brains have. But all right, you might think, well, 300,000, that's peanuts. Who cares? Maybe these guys are useless at those things. But then on the other hand, they are pretty fast. We can't catch them. So we got curious about it. And we put electrode between them and we listened in. And remarkably, if you simply listen to let alone 300,000, let alone 3,000, if you simply listen to 300 neurons out of these many, with 300 neurons, you can predict what is going to be happening with an accuracy better than the best player. So the, actually, surprisingly, this part of the brain has massive amount of very, very precise information. But for some reason, we don't have conscious access to it. Mm. It's weird. It's like somebody has given you a Ferrari, but you can drive it only like a bicycle. <laughs> you right. can only drive like a bicycle. So if only we can unlock that potential, that's where we are going with virtual reality. Can we unlock that potential if it is the case? And this is absolute case. We and many people have demonstrated that just a few hundred neurons in a mouse brain has way more information about space than the whole mouse combined. The question is, like you were saying, about if I'm non-declarative to declarative or unconscious to conscious memory, if we can unlock it, then it's a whole new game. And wow. we are on to that. Yeah. Wow. 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 Isn't that fascinating? Well, here, here's what here's what I'm prepared to do, Dr. Meta. I'm prepared to go sit with those Zen monks and see if they can yeah. unlock my brain. And here, I'll give you guys full access to what's between my ears. Let's see. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe we can or, figure maybe we can figure it out. You you can go and sit with Zen monks. They're pretty tough creatures. I have taken Zen meditation training. It, I strongly recommend it to anybody for any reason. That's a really solid for 10 days. You've got to try that. It'll open your mind to things that you never thought existed under your skull. But at the same time, I also recommend you a much simpler approach. This virtual reality that we have developed. We were interested in humans. So this is a unique virtual reality where you can take away the mouse and we can put it around a human head. And it completely surrounds the human head. It's no longer none of these goggles or something where you don't see your hands. Well, if you want to play any game, if you don't see your hand, what good is virtual reality for training? This virtual reality that we have, you can see your own hands and feet. Now, that's the special one. And that's where we see the interaction between the paw movements of the mice and the vision. We can see the single neurons literally combine the two on the fly in the representation that's it's incredible it sounds to me like you guys have watched way too much star trek it sounds like you've created a holodeck or something <laughs> it's it may or may not be true i can't comment on that right 
Okay. Well, okay. No, no, this is fascinating. I understand. I can't wait to hear more about that. But let's go back to your original work on virtual reality, because here's one thing that's really intrigued me. So we've talked a bit about just the flat screen, you know, the, that some of the training, visual training that we're doing, trying to fine tune or maybe tap into the mind or, or train yeah. certain areas of the mind, whether we are or not, I think there's a big discussion to be had there. But the interesting thing is when you guys put those mice into a virtual world, you guys found the brains didn't operate the same. And this to me was just incredibly fascinating because in our world in sport, so many organizations are trying to look at the potential of, of virtual reality for training their athletes. And it just hasn't worked. Right. So that's a great point. And, you know, when we started this research, that was 10 years ago. A lot of people had looked at virtual reality at that point. It was not the hottest thing at the time, but a lot of people had looked at it. And the consensus was that virtual reality activates the brain in the same way as the real. No difference. So we expected the same thing. But, you know, like any boring scientist, you trust but verify. So we thought, all right, it sounds like this is pretty amazing that the neurons cannot differentiate the two Somewhere in the back of my mind, there was a point saying, are you sure? Like, come on, I can tell when I'm in VR, I'm in VR, it ain't real. So that's pretty impressive that it's the same. So in, in the, the, the thanks to these amazing students at our Center for Biological Physics, we decided to make two worlds. One world is a virtual world that is immersive. Immersive is very crucial because unlike standard virtual reality goggles where you cannot see your hand and feet, in this virtual reality, you can see your hand and feet and you can see your shadow in the virtual world, your actual shadow in the virtual world. This is very important because this is the other extra sense that I've been talking about. So all that was in there. And then just to be safe, because we want to calibrate in the neighboring room, we made a real world, which was like the virtual holodeck. The real world looked the same as virtual world. The walls are these psychedelic colors which are very striking, so the mice cannot miss it. Uh, the stimuli were equally comfortable. They got the same sugary treat, treats in both of them. Everything was identical. Then we trained the rats, mice, to behave in this world. They were behaving the same way in both worlds. So everything was good. When we look under the hood, completely different story. In virtual reality, we found first and foremost that in this very particular part of the brain, that particular part of the brain that we have been studying is the one that creates perception of space-time called hippocampus. I'm going to give you that name because that name is going to become important very soon for NFL players in concussion. So keep that in mind. That name is important. Yeah. And it's important for Alzheimer's too. In that part of the brain called hippocampus, 60% of neurons shut down in virtual reality. 60%. And we thought, whoa, maybe we did something wrong, right? Maybe we messed up something. So maybe the rat hates this virtual reality. So we bring him the next day and we hold him next to the VR to see if he jumps in or not. If he jumps in, he likes to go in. If he doesn't go and make some weird noises, he doesn't like it. He jumps in. In fact, when he goes into the virtual reality, he immediately starts to run. He's super excited. He licks the rewards. He goes, takes a nap in virtual reality at the virtual napping place. It's equally smelly and comfortable as everything else. He behaves exactly like this. He forms a 3D perception. If there's some chandelier above his head, he stands up to touch it as if it's real, even though there's no reward associated. He does the same things in the real world. 
but 60% of neurons are shut down. Massive. There is no drug that I know until today that can shut down neurons in one part of the brain on demand instantly. Now, I don't know if you're like me, that there are times at which I feel, man, if only I can turn off my brain for a little bit. Here it is. Here is that thing. We can turn off neurons in one part of the brain on command. Now, why is that important? And why is that a big deal? Turns out that small part of the brain that we are studying is the place where the following major diseases arise. Alzheimer's disease, autism, epilepsy, PTSD, depression, schizophrenia. The list is long. We don't have cure for a large number of them. Not only that, when somebody gets a giant injury on a head through concussion, or somebody suffers lack of oxygen due to some reason, asphyxiation, the first part of the brain that gets damaged is hippocampus. Hippocampus is involved not only in perception of space, but it is also involved in conversations. It's involved in intelligence. It's involved in music. It's involved in mathematics. It's the oldest part of the brain, one of the oldest part of the brain. So it's a tiny part of the brain, roughly the size of your thumb, but it seems to be doing a hell of a lot. So if we get an idea, we expect this. First of all, neither we nor anybody expected that just by being in virtual reality, 60% of these neurons will be turned off. Wow. Yeah, so now we are curious, what can we use this? Can we use this for long term? Can we use this as a therapy to turn this off longer term or shorter term? Can we do something else with it? So we are working on that right now. We are working with the next generation of VR and looking at these signals more closely to figure out how these things work. Okay, this is big stuff. Think of the implications here, Dr. Mehta. Absolutely fascinating. All right, we have to cut out for another quick break. When we come back, let's finish this discussion and let's find out maybe if we can turn up parts of the brain, turn down parts of the brain, and just how is this going to work in helping us become better performers in sport. It's all coming up right after this on Crush Performance. Stick around. If you have any questions, comments, or smart remarks, write Crusher at crushperformance.com and follow him on Twitter at Jeff Crush. Now, back to the Crusher. You tell me just to leave it, I tell you I can try. All these static notions, they leave me high and dry. All the guilt and tension and all the prying eyes. Lordy, Lordy. Welcome back to Crush Performance, everybody. We are well into Episode number four of the Crush Brain Game. The Brain Game, of course, being one of our major themes over this 2021 season. Right alongside Talent and Talent ID, we've got some incredible series coming up later on this year on the Brain Game. And coming up in a few weeks, we'll be diving into our Talent and Talent ID series, which is going to be fascinating. Of course, the brain, sleep, Talent, Talent ID, everything is tied together so closely, but it is the brain that rules the roost. It is integrated and communicates with every cell, organ, and tissue in our body. And today's conversation is exactly what the Crush Brain Game is all about. Boy, oh boy. We are talking with Dr. Mayank Mehta of the UCLA Department of Neurology, discussing all of the incredible work he and his team have been doing in the areas of how the brain operates how the brain perceives information, how it locks it in to memories and helps us retrieve it so we can function in the real world. Dr. Mehta, thank you for hanging on over the break. You know, we were just talking about the whole concept of virtual reality and the 
unimaginable potential that might be right on the doorstep of discovery. But it sounds like the way virtual reality sits right now, you know, when we look at training our athletes and trying to improve performance, it might not be a very good place to be right now for stimulation and learning. I think it's a good place, but it has to be the right kind of virtual reality. Uh If you're using a virtual reality, which are only the goggles, but you don't see your hands and feet, well, that's going to do something different to your library. If you're going to be creating a library that's different, it's like changing the recipe halfway through. So that's the thing that, again, maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. But my guess is that that's not the best way to go forward. The right way to go forward with the virtual reality techniques is to use this virtual reality and figure out if you're turning off the neurons, can I adapt the virtual reality to turn on? Because if you can turn off, you can turn on. Turning on is much easier than turning off. So we are working on that ways to turn on selective set of neurons. You don't want to turn on all the neurons. It's like in a room full of people, everybody starts to talk at the same time. That's a bad idea. You want a select set of people to speak more and others to listen. We have uh, we have a hook into that direction. Wow. So we believe that in this VR, the fact that the players can see their own hands and feet and the stimulus in their even shadow, that's the right step in the right direction. That's why we developed it, and that's a unique feature. Next thing is we are working on is, can we now use it to activate the right set of neurons? Realize that in the brain, there are 100 billion neurons. If I turn off the wrong set of neurons, that's a good thing for the right set of neurons, right? There are two ways in which you can win. Either the good guys win or the bad guys lose. This may be the bad neurons potentially being turning off that can improve the predictive ability of the good neuron because interference goes away. Oh, I like it. Kind of like down-regulating the noise and up-regulating the information that you want access to. Wow. Exactly. Wow. We are going even next level. We are looking at sleep. Turns out some amount of learning that we do is during behavior. But a huge amount of stuff goes on during sleep. In fact, this part of the brain is... 90% 90% as active during sleep as during behavior, 90%. And brain is not a small place. You know, many players will count the size of the biceps to measure how strong they are, which is crucially important. But brain, which is tiny compared to biceps or legs, consumes one-third to one-fifth of the energy of the entire body. It's consuming a lot of calories. It continues to consume those calories during sleep and the muscles are not consuming much at all. That's when this story continues. So the next day you are better. If you didn't sleep, you're not so good. So we're looking at how these things work as well. Oh boy, you are preaching to the choir here, Dr. Mehta. You are preaching to the choir on our number one priority right now. When we set up an athlete or a team or an organization, when we start designing their performance programs, the first thing we address is their sleep, rest, and recovery. So we're on to something there. In terms of the VR and shutting uh, areas of the brain down, oh boy, oh boy, I can relate to that too. Because when I, I I have broken sleep, I wake up in the middle of the night, and it's not that I'm not tired or it's not that I feel awake, but the second I start thinking, it's so difficult to shut that monster down again. I can't get back to sleep. So, oh, hey, I, I'm all on board. If you're looking for subjects, test subjects, I'm all on board. This is exciting stuff, you know. We're just talking about 
you know, our, where we're at in our understanding of the brain, we have such a long way to go, but it's conversations and breakthroughs like this that, that really, really give us um, a grip on how exciting and, and how much potential is still left in understanding the brain. Absolutely. I mean, I think that despite these discoveries that I'm very proud of my team, it is amazing work bringing all this together. They figured out rat psychology, they figured out neurosurgery, they figured out VR, mathematics, all of it. But still, with due respect to all of them, we have barely scratched the surface because this thing just popped out of nowhere. Imagine the potential if you can turn on and turn off neurons on demand non-invasively, without any drugs, just like that. That's a whole new world. Wow. You know, um, uh, what, what a great conversation. We're talking with Dr. Mike Mehta from the UCLA Department of Neurology, Department of Physics and Astronomy and Electronics and uh, Communication Engineering. Uh, Dr. Mehta, my mother had early onset dementia. And unfortunately, she went through that terrible period where she realized her brain wasn't working properly. It was the one of the worst things I've ever ever could have imagined as a son. Uh, when she slipped to the other side, it was almost a relief in a lot of ways. I know she's still in there, um, but you know when we look at at trying to find answers as to why 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 her um, why why so early? What actually changed? And, you know that's the Alzheimer's dementia thing is. Oh my goodness! If we could even get a little bit of light on that, that's incredible. And also a better understanding of how the brain reacts and, and recovers from concussions or brain injury. Holy smokes, I can't even imagine what we're, what we're into here. So that's absolutely has been one of my major motivations. I too have lost many loved ones to dementia or brain disorders of several kinds. And it's frustrating and painful to see I cannot do anything about it. We human beings have gotten so more advanced in treating heart diseases, uh, liver diseases, kidney things. Those are complicated things. But when it comes to this, who we are, which is our memories and our, our personality, we are able to do so little. So that's one of the major reasons we are actually studying the how can we alter the brains of mice with these neurological or neuropsychiatric disorders. Can we study depression in mice? In fact, the whole of UCLA has launched this depression grand challenge. So depression is far more common than uh, dementia. Large fraction of people suffer from this. Large number of people suffer from anxiety. Where in the brain is depression? Where in the brain is anxiety? How exactly besides uh, some pills that we pop, can we diagnose and treat this? So we, turns out this same pioneer brain region is involved. So if that seemingly esoteric thing called space and time, if we can understand it, we can interrogate a mouse about space and time, but we cannot interrogate a mouse about are you depressed or what did you have for lunch? So studying space and time is a hook by which we can figure out the malfunction of the campus in animals and humans, because as we agreed right at the beginning, the perception of space and time must be universal. Whether you're a crocodile or a lion or a zebra or a bird, every creature has the same perception of space-time. So we're actually using not only perception of space-time, but using space-time as a hook 
to understand, diagnose, and treat these debilitating learning and memory disorders as well. And we are, that's actually currently that's going on in the lab right now. Oh, I love that work on depression, Dr. Matter. That is such, such a worthy cause. And, and you know, who knows where that will lead, right? Even unintentionally, who knows where that will lead? Oh, you've given me goosebumps, the work that's going on there. Um, before we let you go, I, I, could, I could steal you for the rest of the day, by the way. We could just keep this rolling. But, but let me ask you this. You know, based on what you've been able to discover in terms of, of location and space and, and sort of mapping and targeting that, do you get the feeling that we may have a good chance at targeting certain parts of the brain to turn it on or to turn it off, to stimulate Absolutely. it maybe? Absolutely. If you had asked me just two years ago, can we do that? I'd say, forget about it. Nothing can do it. It's not possible. But here it is. We have found a way to turn off select set of neurons on demand. If we can do that, I'm extremely optimistic. And what I can tell you right now, that we have a couple of publications that are coming out. So stay tuned within next one month, when I'm happy to chat with you at that time, where we can do even more. We can do a lot more than that to actually selectively target groups of neurons and change their wiring diagrams and improve these predictive codings, we can do that. Hints of it, still early, but yes, the answer is we have clear evidence that we can do those things. Okay, incredible. Now, what would be the role of like the neuroplasticity and recruiting neurons to serve purposes? Again, thinking about uh, uh, the patients with Alzheimer's or dementia or any of those degenerative brain diseases. If that's possible, it just seems to make sense that we might be able to maybe not cure, maybe maybe deregulate some of those activities exactly. and maybe upregulate some of the things that are, that are disappearing. There you go. So that's a major topic. So when this is directly related to athletes, when athletes get better, the way they are getting better is through neuroplasticity. They have a certain representation. When I play the baseball for the first time or some game, I know rough idea. I can swing the bat. There is a ball. And that's all I got. As time goes on, I'm building up my library through neuroplasticity by refining those neural representations. So neuroplasticity is a major player in creating from perceiving that there's a ball in a bag to proactively acting on where the ball is going to be is that predictive coding is entirely through neuroplasticity. And we we have done a ton of work on that. And again, stay tuned for the next publication where we show the nature of neuroplasticity's role in virtual reality directly. So stay tuned for that. Oh. I can't talk about it because of the press embark. I, I un- maybe in a month. Okay, I understand and I totally respect that. And you, listen, oh boy, oh boy. Yeah, uh, I am, you're going to be on the bat phone. It's going to be the, 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 the meta bat phone, man. As soon as that thing rings, we're going to be answering for sure. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Matter, for you and your entire team, for all the work you've done that has led us. And I'm talking us globally. I mean, this is a, you guys are, are steering a massive ship here. Um, oh my goodness. What would happen if you could connect and enhance the communication of the different centers of the brain, reestablishing some of the connections between the motor cortex and the visual cortex, exactly. perhaps, Exactly. Come, come on. Sounds like science fiction, but it's doable. And we have hints of that. 
And once again, again, I should say I'm extremely grateful to the students and postdocs, the whole Center for Biological Physics, and most importantly, WM Keck Foundation. They were the ones who took a chance on us when I pitched these ideas 10 years ago to them to say, hey, we want to put rats in virtual reality. Anybody who said, what do you want to do? You want to get funded to put rats in VR? That's a useless thing to do. But they took a chance on our idea of multi-sensor fusion, and here we are. So I'm very grateful to have this opportunity from a lot of people who signed on to this very, very <laughs> creative and crazy idea, but it's working out. Oh, my goodness. What a team effort. And it does take a team. Dr. Mehta, thank you so much for our time today. This has been an absolute incredible piece of the puzzle for the Crush Brain game and all of our audience out here. You got you have really, really uh, connected a lot of dots for us here today. And, and, I, and I know there's more to come and I can't wait. I'll be knocking on your door 30 days from now. You said about a month. I'll be I'll be there and I'm going to be a thorn in your side. Unfortunately, I hope I don't get too carried away. But but what an exciting time, Dr. Meta. So for our for our moms and our dads, for our coaches and our teachers, for for our employers, for our elite athletes who are listening to the show today, what would be the message based on where we're at right now from, from you? I think the message is very optimistic and with a bit of caution. So virtual reality is not just a TV. That's the first thing we got to realize. It's a far more powerful than television. Why is that? When I look at a television, it's just a screen on which something that's going on, it reacts to what I do based on when I click the remote button and that's all there is to it. Virtual reality is a whole different ballgame. Every movement that I make, such as move my head or no, head or not, it changes the scene. It goes under the hood. It's a brand new technology and we got to use this as such. Our brain has tremendous neuroplasticity. That neuroplasticity gets fused with this moment-to-moment -moment reaction of virtual reality. So we got to, it's a massively powerful tool. It seems like it's simple, but it is not. Number two, if we can use it carefully, we can use virtual reality to cure diseases. We can use it to make athletes better. And even more interestingly, in the days of COVID, when so much ed education is remote, we can use VR for the next generation of education of children which can make education personalized, immersive, more engaging, and far easier. So the potential is enormous. And we are working on all these fronts. Not only are we on the cusp of what I've been saying, and this is sort of the driving uh, force behind the Crush Brain game, not only are we on one of the most exciting frontiers in human performance, we might be on the cusp of one of the most exciting frontiers in human existence, if we can tap into this thing between our ears. Absolutely, absolutely. And the technology is coming along for, for, for us to do, put it to good use. It's totally there. Oh, exciting times, Dr. Meadow. Well, listen, you have given us a lot to think about and um, I will be losing some sleep because, <laughs> because of this conversation in a good, good way, Dr. Mehta. Thank Absolutely. you so much. Hey, listen, I look forward to following up again when your new research is published. Uh, I know myself, and I'll speak for my audience right now, we can't wait. Thank you. Really appreciate your time and looking forward to chatting with you again. Oh, people, how about that? This is exactly what Crush Performance is all about. This is what 
gets me up in the morning. And this is what drives me every single day to keep learning, investigating, and trying to understand not just the world around us, but how we integrate and work within that world. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. And to think, it might be the virtual world that puts us on the other side of where we're at right now in human performance. What an incredible conversation. I really can't wait to see their new research when it comes out next month and where it will take us. We're going to be there, ladies and gentlemen. We will be right there talking about it as soon as that research is published because I've got a funny feeling that there's something seriously brewing over there at UCLA with Dr. Mayank Mehta and his entire team. Fascinating stuff. What an incredible way to wrap up this series of The Crush Brain Game. We'll have two, possibly three more series of shows just like this as we dive down deep to boost our understanding of what the brain game is all about, what it really truly entails, and where should it sit in the hierarchy of human performance. All right, that'll do it for this week, everybody. I have to thank Dr. Meta again. I want to thank you guys for tuning in. And once again, I have to say, please share this show. If we have one prime directive here at Crush Performance, it's to spread the good word and maybe get people thinking about things they haven't thought about before or maybe get them thinking in a different way of things they're already thinking about. So please join the cause and share the show. All right, coming up in the next few weeks, we're going to look at the injury trends in sport. It's not good. And we're going to try to get a better understanding of what's going on and what we might do to help prevent it. We're going to look at off-season training for hockey and the crush war on sugar will return with our first episode of the science of sweetness. I can't wait and I hope you'll be there. All right, until next week, everybody, get out there, have some fun, stay safe and get a little bit better. Talk to you then. Goodbye now. Don't forget to ride. This is a Rock Stops Here with Rock Riley Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Here's my guest, ESPN broadcaster, college football analyst, Rini Ingolia. He played college football at the University of Massachusetts, UMass. Three years started, over 1,000 yards, all three years, All-American. Was he going to get drafted? He didn't get drafted in the NFL. He was bummed out, so he was signed as a free agent. He was with the Buffalo Bills. He's a guy, a young man that grew up in Rochester, New York. So for him, that was a that was a dream come true. So he was in the NFL for a short time. He ended up playing also at uh, NFL Europe, the Frankfurt Galaxy. What it was like over there. He played in the World Bowl. He scored the winning touchdown, and then he got into police work, law enforcement. He was started as a patrolman, and he did it all. He worked He worked just about every single department and ended up being a police detective in Orlando. He only just retired months ago this past year. He's still in his 40s. He's a young man. He put in his 20 years. And, of course, he is still an ESPN college football broadcaster. We talk football. We talk about his journey. Also, very quickly, but boy, oh, boy, very passionate on what it was like and being a law enforcement officer and all that goes with it and, of course, his broadcasting career. Here he is, my man, Rini Ingolia. 
The Rock stops here with longtime radio and TV personality Rock Riley is found anywhere you find podcasts and radioinfluence.com.